Okay. We're going to start with a joke. Okay? Ready? Knock, knock. Who's there? 9-11. 9-11 who? Thought you said you'd never forget. Oh, it's so Welcome to Never Forget Radio, where, from the comfort of your own home or your device, and from the safety of the future, we can revisit the memory of 9-11, of George W. Bush, and of all the years associated with both since. It's been over a decade of disappointment, failure, and disaster. I'm no expert, but I'll be your host as we explore our recent past and try to reclaim it. Let's roll. Nine eleven. Who? Now I don't have any physical record of my feelings that day. Only heightened memories of classrooms and hallways, rumors, things that people said. I also have a series of poems that I wrote in the subsequent weeks and months. I was a very affected adolescent. Everyone has their own story, their own experience, their own 9-11. Mine just happens to involve some poetry. I have it here. It's, uh, I have it here by accident, actually. But I, I'd like to say this out loud. <clears throat> well, I, I have several pages of poems. I, I made sure that I would never forget. I might not want to share my poems, but there's a value to handwritten documents. Imagine the scope of all the writings, the poems, art, and songs that were written in the immediate aftermath. What that art might reveal about documentation, memorialization, memory, and policy and history. There are some primary sources that document what America's leaders were doing. Of course, there's footage of President Bush reading a picture book in a classroom when he heard the news. And then there's this supreme memento, an absolute expression of self, this less reported on historical document, taken by one Stephen Cambone, special assistant to Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense. These are existing notes that document what Rumsfeld was dictating to his subordinates in the immediate aftermath of the attacks, only a few hours after the building he was in was hit by a plane. These were quoted in the 9-11 Commission report and then declassified with heavy redactions in response to a request by Freedom of Information Act activist Thad Anderson in 2006. Again, most of these notes were heavily censored and not released to the public. This is what we have. Best info fast. Judge whether good enough hit SH at same time. Not only UBL. Target needs go massive. Sweep it all up, things related or not. Again, judge whether good enough hit SH at same time. Not only UBL. This is Rumsfeld on the very day planning to hit Saddam Hussein, SH. Not only UBL, Osama bin Laden, sometimes spelled with a U. After that, there's a lengthy redaction that was held back, not released to the public followed by hard to get a good case and need to move swiftly and the notes conclude go massive sweep it all up things related and not 
This is the sinister scope that I hope to approach in this podcast. Just as Rumsfeld and Bush used the attacks to go after all their enemies, imagined and real, foreign and domestic, related and not, so I will try to go massive, whether examining art or events or people or speculation. This is not just a history review. It must be an act of memory, gliding, swooping, not always related or obviously connected. We'll try to evoke feelings and non-literal associations to address the past not with the minute detail of the historian, but with the broad but personal scope of someone trying to remember. I will try for myself and for you in revisiting this time to ape the Rumsfeld Doctrine, to go massive, to sweep it all up, and to cover Bush and 9-11 and all things related and not. Now, before we do this, you might be wondering who I am, that I want to talk to strangers about 9-11 on the internet. I'm from New York, from a commuter town, White Plains, 30 miles north of Manhattan. Over 100 people died from Westchester County on 9-11. Many more commuted to work downtown every day. Like my father, in fact, he worked in the World Trade Center until August 2001 when he luckily got another job. His company, Aon Insurance, occupied the 98th through 105th floors of the second tower. He knew a lot of people, and I, I remember him in the basement on the early internet scouring survivors' lists for news of his friends. And there were a lot of funerals, no bodies. He doesn't talk about it. These are my credentials. I wanted to establish them. But I also want to remind you and myself that I speak not only from the safety of the future, but from the safety of class and position of race and gender. Having a parent who worked way up in the World Trade Center should give you a sense of the economic privilege I grew up with. I'm a white male American. No statement that I could make could turn me into a dissident, though every day black and brown Americans are targeted by the police on suspicion alone. I don't fear reprisal or assumption because of my race. I won't be blamed for inciting anyone. My opinions will not be dismissed as hysterical. My literal voice will not be mocked. No one will challenge my assumptions even when I use the phrases us and them without thinking. No one will demand to see a picture of me or critique my body. No one will question my citizenship. No one who looks like me will worry that I'm giving them a bad name. No one will threaten me sexually. People will listen to me or not, but no one will hate me. No one will hear anything less than a person. I will try to never forget this. I am a privileged American. There was this period right after the attacks where all kinds of people, myself included, felt American, just American with no qualifiers or prefixes. You probably remember this, there was this bubble, this upswelling of support, this generalized support. We were all New Yorkers. People supported things, our president, our troops. We were all united in support of things, in support of something, something very important. We were all Americans. But very quickly this mass feeling, this spontaneous group trauma was exploited by the Bush administration to push through the agenda of the right and quickly and expertly 
use and ownership of 9-11 was shifted away from us who experienced it. I don't mean us people who have a direct connection like my father or us New Yorkers or even us Americans. Idealistically, I mean us, the people who witnessed the event. Anyone who experienced 9-11 had an extreme personal connection that was taken away. Ownership of the event was taken from us, from all of us, and shifted to the right. And they used it. They started wars and militarized our domestic policies, and they did all that they could with 9-11 until it was no longer ours. They did such a good job that even after all these years, the thought of revisiting those times, the idea of George W. Bush fills me with impotence. Not the ordinary adolescent impotence that I felt every day of his presidency when confronted by a strong man, a strong man like Bush, the very fit Bush, our most in-shape president, his projected toughness, his power, his appearances in public wearing flight suits on the decks of aircraft carriers declaring his personal victories in war. Not even his demeanor, which reduced his opponents to impotence. A nasty, intimidating man. Like he knew, and you knew, and he knew you knew, and you knew he knew that he was fucking with you. That constant twinkle that no one could miss. I don't mean that impotence. There's an impotence to history. We're too late to try to explain or record, to try to define or examine the past. Even while we ponder and look back, the new people in power enact new terrors. They don't look back. Rumsfeld wasn't looking back on the day. He wasn't saying, why did this happen? Why is the U.S. so despised? What have we been doing for decades in the Middle East to inspire such antagonism? He wasn't looking at the present. Who did this? How did they do it? He was looking squarely at the future. He was thinking, do we have enough? Is this what we've been waiting for? Is this our Reichstag fire? Can we hang hat and hit SH? People in power, they don't look back, but we do. Historians, impotent historians, helplessly, never able to fix the past, to stop the present, or prevent the future. Just since I started this project, there have been new revelations about the scope of executive power. We've seen stateless violence and government reprisal in Boston and London. There have even been rumors and saber-rattling about American military intervention against North Korea and Syria. This is the same kind of daily catastrophic normalcy that keeps rapturists on the edge of their seats. All of it was delivered and sold to us with the same tenor and logic and fear of the Bush years, calculated to make us feel impotent and small and helpless, and for us to want to be protected again by the comforting arms of powerful men. I want to make it clear that I don't want to examine Rumsfeld or Bush or Obama or events solely through the lens, the dominant historiographical lens of the great man theory, that one man has the outsized capacity to influence events. This is the familiar way that history is written and taught, whether in children's biography or Hollywood biopic. One man standing above time, influencing events, putting his swath over whole eras. This theory denies the agency and participation of ordinary people in history which is to say, in their own time, 
denies the participation and existence of everyone who wasn't in power. We can not only look back at those men at the top, Bush and Rumsfeld, or their McGreetly faceless henchmen like Stephen Cambone. I won't just be looking back at Bush. I hope to feature ordinary people's 9-11s, activists' oral histories of opposition action, hopefully interviews with former soldiers. There will be famous art. Future episodes will cover Bruce Springsteen's 9-11 album and a certain 1980s movie with Patrick Swayze that illuminates decades of American foreign policy. There will also be less well-known artists, punks like No One in the Somebody's and Old Table, who've provided music for this episode. I promise there'll be art to help us get through the past, because I understand that we might be hesitant to revisit those times, now that we've safely gotten through them and now that Bush has retired to Texas. And I know that we are all burdened with over-access to the macabre, and the few of us really want to be reminded about the white phosphorus attacks on Fallujah, of Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib, of indefinite detention, extraordinary rendition, of all the Orwellian nights that we spent with those men. Like waking up after a nightmare, it's, it's easier to forget it and just go brush your teeth, but if you try to write it down and engage and think about the disasters in your hazy memory, you might find some personal truth or closure there. You might find something there. And that's what I hope to do. I hope to find something there in our nation's past and my own, through memory and history, through performance and art. We said we'd never forget, but we are forgetting. We're forgetting. And that means we're losing. We're losing the war, the second war, the subsequent war, the shadow war, the historiographical war. We're losing that war. We're losing control of how our lives will be remembered and recorded and taught and learned from. The past is slipping away from us. If we forget, they will win again. Fighting on these fronts, historiography and memory, instead of, say, political resistance, is not a lot, but I hope it's something. The historiography of 9-11 how it's told and recorded and remembered has so far been a victory for the right. Though it was shared by all of us, its significance was taken by the few and used for heinous ends, for wars of imperialistic conquest and the cheerful adoption of a surveillance state. And their total ownership of 9-11 has rendered all memorialization suspect, Even heartfelt, honest, and sincere responses have to be warily regarded. Sentiments to be distrusted, calculating patriotism to be resisted, ham-handed cliches to be mocked. But today, I mean this invocation with all the sincerity that I've never been able to take seriously. This time, I really mean it. And I hope that you can accept my earnestness for what it is, And for whatever value it has, we must never forget.
Never Forget Radio is a production of Bookstyle Publications, currently located in West Philadelphia. Music is by No One in the Somebodies and Old Table. You can hear more at oldtable.bandcamp and noineinthesomebodies.bandcamp. If you like this program and want to know more, or if you'd like to suggest a future topic or offer a piece of your mind, particularly criticism from the left, we have executed an imperialist land grab on the internet, allowing you to find us on Facebook, Gmail, Tumblr, and Bandcamp under the name Never Forget Radio, or follow us on Twitter at Never Forget Pod. All of our episodes can be downloaded for free on our Bandcamp. The first three episodes of Never Forget Radio have been released together, and you can expect new ones soon. Today's quote comes from a 2004 interview with Bob Woodward, who asked the president, How do you think history will judge your Iraq war? Bush replied, History? We won't know. We'll all be dead. Thank you, and never forget.